Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Shifts Happen. Uh, and Shifts Can't Happen without my main man, Luke Grumman, joining me to talk about them. So, Luke, welcome, mate. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you today, Grant? I am very, very well indeed. Very well indeed. I'm fascinated by this ongoing carnival we're watching. Um, <laughs> as things that weren't supposed to happen happen and things that shouldn't have happened do. I mean, it, it really is fascinating, you know. And, and again, uh, it, it's the theme of the show. But this is these are all things that you've been talking about for for an extraordinarily long time, which is why I'm so thrilled to get this chance to, to talk this through you, kind of live time, as it were, as it all kind of unfolds. And, and where I want to start this week, Luke, if I can, is the ruble, because we saw an awful lot of crowing uh, the day after sanctions kicked in when the ruble collapsed and we had people talking about how this was the end of the ruble and, you know, Putin's going to regret the day he ever did this. And, and that kind of flew in the face of of your theory about what's really important here, which of course is energy and not necessarily paper currencies. So let's talk about the ruble, where it is now, how it got here and what you see going on in that. Yeah, I mean, we, like you said, it, it collapsed, I think, to 120 or something in the days after this, the initial sanctions were put in place and President Biden was saying the ruble is rubble as uh, um, as a result of those sanctions. And, and that was pretty much, <laughs> I think, the bottom in the ruble. And what we've seen is the uh, the Russians have have basically deployed their energy in a manner uh, to defend the ruble, and it's in a manner that you and I talked about back on March 11th, just hypothesizing of uh, how they might go about doing that. And so what they did was they just said, "Listen, okay, you got to have rubles for gas," and and they've stuck to that. And we've started to see various European uh, energy companies, excuse me, buying in rubles. Uh, it's a bit of a convoluted process where they take the euros and they put it in Gazprom Bank and then Gazprom Bank converts them to rubles. And, and there's still some opacity, as far as I can tell, regarding uh, whether Gazprom Bank is creating new rubles or if they're bidding for rubles in the open market or if they're going to the central bank of Russia and and, and the central bank is creating rubles. But the punchline to all of it is that the ruble has gone from, call it 120 on the dollar shortly after the sanctions. Uh, yesterday, it was up 7% to break under 60. Today, it's up another 4%, 56 it's strengthening meaningfully. And effectively, it's this mismatch. You hear a lot of conversation. Uh, I had one earlier this week and over the weekend with people uh, about, is it a real move? Is it not a real move? Uh, and, right. and, I, and it's this really interesting bifurcation, I think, between people that live their lives in the paper world, in the financial markets, and they say it's not a real move and I, I can't trade it and no one's stockpiling it. And they're, look, there's no trading volume, there's no trading depth, and all of which is true. Yeah. But I think that's a, there, there's a much more fundamental misperception in that, which is these are people that have always, the, 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 the paper markets are reality. And what we're seeing is a splintering between the paper markets and reality. That's what we're seeing with inflation. That's what we're seeing with, with, with this uh, as well. And so what I mean by that is, yes, 
you, it's very hard to trade the ruble. Uh, there's a, a retail gap, black market rate uh, between uh, the ruble rate and what you see on your screens uh, reportedly. But fundamentally, that completely ignores what's going on here, which is the Russians said, we want ruble for our gas, and the European Union buys at current prices about $150 billion per year of Russian energy. And so basically, the paper sort of people in the paper world are looking at this going, well, the volumes stink over here and I can't. What do I do with it? And and it's like there's this elephant in the room, which is there is a market over here for energy, which is 150 billion bid, no offers. Right. And and, and the alternative to that is, is you can freeze in the dark, Europe. You can have your economy collapse. You can have your debt markets collapse. You can have your markets collapse. You can have tens of millions of people starve. What do you want to do? And I, what I find is the people on the paper side are like, well, but I can't trade it. But there's this black market and then the Russian retail. This is like the sideshow, the paper side, the Russian retail spread. That's all a sideshow. The real game is this $150 billion bid, no offers in the ruble, uh, which has allowed the Russians to strengthen, defend uh, the ruble. Um, yes, is it a one-sided market? Absolutely. With that said, what we did to the Russians turned the ruble into a one-sided market the other way. But everyone kind of kind of leaves that out right, um, right. as as hey, you know, they are um, they are sort of trying to defend that. And what's been interesting to me within all this is part of the defense of the ruble that we saw. The Russian central bank took rates to twenty percent along with this move to demand uh, uh, ruble for gas. And once the ruble for gas got put in place, uh, shortly thereafter, the ruble began rising. Russian central bank dropped rates to 17%, and the ruble still rose. And then the Russian central bank took the, the rates down to 14%, and the ruble still rose. And then they started opening up uh, FX accounts for companies back to both ways, and the ruble still rising. And yesterday, the headline came out, you retweeted it, noting that the Russian central bank is actually selling rubles uh, for other currency, and the ruble's still yeah. rising. And so I think that that fact pattern, regardless of sort of the gnashing of teeth and the amongst the paper trading world of, oh, this isn't a real market, it's one way, I can't trade it, there's this spread, is the ruble just keeps going up when it should be going down. Every single thing I just listed of those factors should have driven the ruble down and it's still going up despite those factors. And I think what that speaks to is something you and I talked about back in March and, and again, the last time we talked, which is the real value is energy. And, and, and basically, that's what Putin is putting right in everybody's face. And I think that's part of what, why everyone is so worked up about it, why they're so angry about it is, is the paper traders are being told, listen, you're, this is a sideshow. Here's the real game. Energy is the real game. You can trade ruble all you want if you've got gas to buy, but if you don't have gas to buy, get out of here. We don't want your paper trading of our currency. It's 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 a sideshow. Well, it's fascinating, right? Because when we talk about the shifts that are happening, this is the piece of the puzzle that, in terms of recognizing that, I'm confused that people don't see, and that is the shift overall. There are many concurrent shifts, but one of the biggest ones is this shift from the paper to the real again. You know, this is what happens when fiat currencies reach the end of their lifetime. We go back to something that's real. And previously, it's been a gold standard. If you read history, at any point in the last couple of hundred years, whenever things got fractious or there were problems, we would go back to a gold standard. 
it just so happens that this shift is taking place again, but for energy instead of gold, because energy is the new gold and energy is absolutely vital, as we've seen, to all parts of the economy. And so when people talk about the ruble being a, a, you know, a, a, a fake market, to your point, it doesn't really matter. The energy market is the real market and fiat currencies have been proven to be worth the paper they're printed on. You can't say that for energy. And you definitely can't say that for energy in a world where supply is being restricted by White House policy in America and policy across the Western world. And you now have this block emerging between Russia and China that is only going to get stronger unless things change. And, and I just, I struggle to see how things change in a way that is negative for this dynamic and negative for the ruble. Can you see any way that could happen? I think it would have to be geopolitical in nature because you're right. I mean, basically what, yeah. they, what they've put, they basically put the ruble on a gas standard, right? People, <laughs> people say to me, well, I can't get rubles out. Like, why would you want to get rubles out? It's not a two-way market. Yeah, it is. You put money in and gas comes out. That's a two-way market. And until that changes, it's a two-way market. It's, a, it's basically a gas standard. It, 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 what could change? Look, if we woke up tomorrow and uh, there's been a coup in Russia and Putin's gone and a lot of the Russian hardliners are gone and they've been replaced by sort of 1990s IMF, uh, US, uh, I'll be gentle here, uh, managers, right? You know, so you get, you know, Stan Fisher and Larry Summers and everyone basically in there helping the oligarchs loot the Russian system again to the favor of the West. And they run, you know, they open up the spigots and they open up the taps and 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 away we go. Then I think that is a way that you could see this reverse. Because in, until that reverses, Russia's in the catbird seat. You are in an energy constrained world and they are the biggest uh, producer and energy producer in the world. Uh, when you total up oil and gas, biggest exporter for sure. I don't know that it's by far and away, but they're the key swing producer. They're very low cost. And so as long as, I think that's really the fundamental disagreement between uh, a lot of the Western policy makers that are, that are sort of dollar status quo system uh, friendly and the Russians is, is I think they all know in their hearts the Russians have them by the short hair. They really need regime change. I think we've heard that term, they've uh, regime change uh, over the last three months, which was controversial when uh, I believe Biden talked about it. But I think yeah. that's the ultimate goal here is basically to get Western hands back on uh, the spigots in Russia so they can open them up fully and, and direct them in a manner that is uh, – seen as more expedient to U.S. and Western interests. But it's interesting because, you know, we've seen Draghi in Italy say that it's okay for companies to open ruble accounts. We've now seen Henry Kissinger come out yesterday, you know, no matter what people's feelings about him, and they're, they're, he's a very polarizing character, but he is a senior statesman in American politics. He's been wheeled out and has said that Ukraine should concede territory to Russia so that we don't get over our skis and end up with a terrible outcome. You know, that's not him shooting from the hip, right? That's not him just have, coming out of nowhere and saying something. You know, it seems to me that the longer this goes on, the less chance there is of a Russian coup and the more chance there is that cooler heads will have to prevail. And I struggle to see how concessions aren't made. I mean, I don't think it's the optimum outcome, but we're not in the in a position to seek optimal outcomes. We're here to seek 
uh, avoidance of catastrophe at this point. Yeah, I think that's right. I think ultimately the West fired their best shots. They threw their best punch in the first days after Russia invaded. And I think the plan was we're going to put these sanction in these sanctions in. We are going to hyperinflate the ruble and we're going to collapse their economy. And hopefully that will drive internal political change uh, more in our favor. Um, basically running sort of the Afghanistan-Iran playbook of, of, of weaponizing the dollar and the dollar system. And I think it shocked a lot of people, the ability of Russia uh, to defend the currency in the way they did. I don't know that they had a plan B. I mean, to me, the plan B seems to be like, okay, let's kick the Russian tennis players out of Wimbledon. I mean, there's, there's, <laughs> it was, there's, now it does seem like maybe there is an element of these rate hikes that has gotten politicized. Like, okay, well, if we can't win, then no one's going to win. And so we're going to raise rates and we're going to take the dollar to uh, 110 and we're going to blow up the world, everybody. And we'll, we will kill energy demand and that's how we'll get Russia. But that's, I mean, that, as we're quickly seeing in the U.S. economy, which seems to be not just tapping on the brakes, but slamming on the brakes. I think Europe's already in a recession. It's going to get worse. You're seeing potential food shortages and famine around the world, um, stagflation, you know, trying to run this playbook of we're going to reduce energy demand to achieve this geopolitical outcome with debt levels where they are. It's like trying to give yourself a, a root canal with a shotgun. Like it's it's effective, but the side effects are fatal. So it's it's not going to work. But this comes back to this idea of shifts now, because and this back to this idea of the real versus the fiat, because we're at a point now where these recessionary calls are getting louder. We're seeing, I mean, I love the Snapchat CEO's comments yesterday about how, you know, the situation in Ukraine and supply chains have messed up with their, you know, with their quarterly numbers. <laughs> You're an app. What are you talking about? But, <laughs> but in, meanwhile, in the real world, you know, you, you can't print energy and you can't print food. And so suddenly, very quickly, the real, the tangible has become the only game in town. And it, and it has become a case of, okay, well, sanctions in a fiat world work when what's important are pieces of paper being traded backs and forwards. But sanctioning transactions at a time when what you need is physical goods, it just doesn't work. It's, it's not an effective weapon. No, I think you're seeing that in real time. And it really, I think it comes down to, I think when we talked about uh, either the last time or back in March, is that it really is reduced down to a balance sheet contest, which was Russia's balance sheet against the West's sovereign balance sheet. You know, we're, we're going to cut off your energy or we're going to try to sanction your energy and we'll do without your energy or we'll pay more for energy to try to stop you. And so you're going to lose a little bit of your energy revenues which as a, as a matter of fact, hasn't happened because yeah, they've lost some energy volume, but price is more than offset volume. Uh, and we're gonna take some of your sanctions and that should be enough. And in the meantime, they're so under levered in Russia at the sovereign level, they can take the pain for a lot longer than the West where we've got high levels of sovereign debt, high levels of corporate debt. Um, the consumer came into this okay, but now co consumer debt is starting to rise more rapidly. If you look at some of the credit card data and uh, cash out re refis have certainly been uh, rising pretty pretty notably. So the consumer is starting to relever. But the point is, is, is this, the rise in energy is going to hurt us first. And so again, it's like you said, it's, it's the, the real is the bottleneck. And I think that ultimately you know, when we talked back in March, I, th I thought the grand strategy or the, the grand gambit of Putin was, look, I think China is on, in, on my side. As long as I have them as a customer, I can keep the lights on. Uh, and, 
India has been a benefit in that time too. They've actually, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure that they, they figured that or not, but that has certainly been the case. Uh, and I think peak cheap energy is a reality and a peak cheap energy is a reality. Uh, and my balance sheet's better than their balance sheet. And I can wait if I'm willing to, if I'm willing to take the losses in blood, which I think have been greater than Putin, than Putin thought. I think the Ukrainians have fought very well. I think there've been some really interesting things learned in the military world in terms of some of these, you know, how drones and, and smart weapons and software are, are starting to make irrelevant, very, very expensive pieces of hardware. But in the end, the bottleneck is energy. We, we've reached a point where the bottleneck is energy, the, the peak cheap energy, and that, that changes the leverage in, in global geopolitics. That creates shifts in, in who's really got and who's really got leverage and, and who doesn't. Yeah, we, we've touched on China a few times in this. Where did China stand in this, do you think? I mean, they've been surprisingly quiet. I mean, obviously, they've got their own issues to deal with at the moment, with all the lockdowns and stuff and, you know, big political, internal political stuff going on. But where do they stand in this? Are they just sitting back quietly? I mean, they, tacitly, they seem to be supporting Russia by not coming out and condemning them. And that, as I say, it seems to play into their hands. But do, do you see anything different? No, I mean, I saw a headline the other day that their their purchases of Russian oil are up 50% over the last two months. I think that's all we need to know, really. I think I, I, I've talked to people that know Chinese leadership at a, at, a, at a pretty high level, and their view was that they probably think a little less of Russia as a result of Russia's need to invade, because in, in the Chinese strategy, sort of the, the highest and best of Chinese strategy is winning war without ever firing a shot. And so, um, I, I think maybe they've, they've, their their view of Russian strategy has been downgraded a little bit, perhaps, uh, in, in some people's eyes. Uh, but with that said, they're buying way more Russian energy. They just ran uh, coordinated defense drills yesterday. I was just reading this morning with the Russians. Uh, and, I, and I think they understand when you read some of the Chinese hardliner stuff dating back a decade, how the U.S. has used the dollar system to rein in potential competitors, potential threats, potential adversaries. And so I think the Chinese understand at a fundamental level that sort of the, the paraphrasing of the American Revolution quote of if, if we don't hang together, we're all going to hang separately. And, and I think the Chinese understand that maybe this is suboptimal in terms of how it's gone down. However, uh, here it is. And if the Russians go as a linchpin, uh, then the Chinese are going to be standing alone short water, short energy, short food. And so I, you know, I frequently hear some people say, well, the Chinese and the Russians have a long history of acrimony along the borders and they're not natural friends. And I agree with all that, but I would think the only thing worse for the Chinese than Russians on the border are American controlled Russians on the border uh, of China. And so I think, you know, that's what I thought when this started. I still think that, and I think Chinese actions to date refusal to, to criticize. Um, even when we see things like the Saudis, the Saudis came out over the weekend and said, we are, you know, basically we are supporting Russia within this. And I got to believe that's, you know, between the, the Chinese buying 50% more Russian oil, the Chinese working through, uh, uh, Chinese influence working through Saudi, because you look at Chinese, the Saudis list of, of clients and at the top of the list by far is China. And yeah. so I think, and, and it's everybody's interest to have a, a it's, it's an oil producer's interest to have a full price of oil, but probably not a price of oil where it is. You know, basically, I think the Saudis and probably the Russians want 80 to 90 dollar oil and stability. 
and we've got $110 oil and instability. And I don't think that's in anybody's favor. So uh, I, I think the Chinese are siding with Russia effectively. And I think they're going to continue to side with Russia um, sort of in, in, indefinitely. Um, let, let's switch the focus to Europe then, because they're obviously right in the middle of all this, because they're the ones who are absolutely reliant upon Russia. They don't have really any options right now to certainly replace what they need to replace. We've seen the decisions being made at the highest level. We've seen the political infighting. We've seen the Turkish veto of Finland joining NATO. You know, it, it feels like Europe's almost pulling itself apart over this. How do you characterise the European um, reaction to all this? Um, broadly speaking, economic suicide uh, by people that you know, when I see the quotas, you know, policymakers and, you know, that, that where the, where the hors d'oeuvres just show up at the cocktail party, like that's how they think the hors d'oeuvres get there. And it's, I agree, it is starting to pull the European Union apart. And it's, and it's interesting. I think number one, the policymakers there, the Atlanticists, if you will, the, the sort of the, you know, the Anglo-American uh, uh, more leaning uh, politicians there, I think are still managing to optics rather than to outcomes. I don't think they understand the situation they're in. Um, and I think where this goes is ultimately they have to turn east. I think that, you know, the, the, the American or the American leaning European politicians, I think, are either going to turn east for energy or they're going to get voted out of office because the energy is the energy situation is going to cause economic collapse in Europe. Um, I mean, it, it is economic suicide what they're what they're doing. The U.S. is cheering it on, and I think cynically, um, I, I think a, a lot of the pressures you and I have long talked about with the dollar, or the U.S. balance of payments, something that buys time for the U.S. is if the U.S. can get the European Union to break up, and that we can get those sort of those sweet German surpluses buying treasuries again instead of you know. Spending it on their own people, God forbid. You know, I don't or know. That subsidizing Greece and Italy. Right, exactly. Right. I was just about to say, I don't know how well that's worked out for Germany, <laughs> relatively speaking. Uh, but, you know, it's European capital recycled into the European Union as opposed to European capital financing, you know, me. Um, yeah. Uh, so to answer your question directly, I think it's economic suicide for the Europeans. I think it is putting significant strain on the European Union. And I think they're going to quickly move to a point where, and I I think that point will be in the next three months when it starts to get cold in the, at night, where the politicians and, uh, are going to be forced to make a choice because there's, there's no way they can cut utilization enough. There's no way they can transition enough. Uh, and the debt levels are so high, you can't downshift the economy enough and keep, keep, the, uh, um, keep the debt nominally money good. So they're really in a position, and I, I, I've written this a couple times now, that's eerily reminiscent in some ways of, of Weimar Germany after World War I, where the, uh, the, the, the French came into the Ruhr Valley, seized coal stores as part of war reparations, and you took away energy from Germany. And then the Germans said, well, screw it. We'll just print money to offset the loss of energy. And you know, you sort of have this legendary hyperinflation. Now, I don't think the European Union is going to hyperinflate, but there's, you now have a playbook where they could, right? I mean, literally they could 
you know, with the energy losses, if they decide to fiscally stimulate over that, I mean, we've seen the weakness in the euro. Um, now they're talking about going the other direction, you know, uh, Lagarde yesterday uh, in terms of raising rates sooner. Inflation rates have been very high. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, the European Union is in a very difficult spot. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's in a very difficult spot. Well, it's, it's interesting you bring up Lagarde. You know, we saw today she said we're not in panic mode. You know, which is which is <laughs> we're which in is panic always mode. inspires confidence, right? When, well, we, we didn't ask if you're in panic mode, but thanks for telling us. And it is fascinating because you know, one by one, these central bankers are belatedly realizing that hey, you know what, this isn't transitory, and we do have a real inflation problem here. The ECB have have now, it seems, realized that oh, shit, we're going to have to do something about this. When you look at these constant high PPI numbers coming in right across Europe, which you just know is going to translate into CPI inflation at some point, no matter how they try and read the numbers. But that's where they are. That's the reality they now have to deal with. They're behind the curve, and there's no sign whatsoever that this stuff is going to moderate, particularly if there's energy shortages here. So what do the ECB do? I mean, they have to raise rates, right? They don't have a choice at this point. I mean, they're, they're at minus 0.1 still. So, I mean, it's, it's the whole thing's farcical. But they, surely they have to get religion. They have to get it quickly. And this speaks to, you know, something you and I have talked about for a while in the U.S., right? The Fed's no longer operating a dial. It's a switch. USA economy on, USA economy off. And it's true in Europe as well, right? Where, yeah, you're, you're at minus one and PPI's whatever, 25 or 33% Germany. Yeah, 30, or yeah, 30, it's, yeah. it's crazy. And the reality is, is forget 30, like, like three breaks the system. That's, that's the problem. I think, and this ties back to this original point where I think Putin knew he's, he's, he's a balance sheet contest and his balance sheet's so much better than everybody else's, particularly in the West, you're not going to have to wait long for it to ripple through. And so here we are, you know, an invasion plus three months actually to the day. It was, it was February 24th and it's, it's March, May 24th here. And we've got, you know, European PPI at 30 plus, you know, in, in, in Germany and, 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 and elsewhere, and you've got rates at minus one. And so you go, they can't get, there's, there's, there's no way they can get rates anywhere near that without collapsing the debt markets, in which case the ECB is going to have to come in and buy all the debt, which is only going to make the inflation worse. And so it really is this, you know, economy on, economy off. And so I, I think it really is. Uh, I think we are really getting people who always said, "When's when's sort of the reset moment? When's the when do we reach the end of the road?" I think PPI thirty, right? Short term rates negative one are are like that's that's the preface to it. And I think what we end up with is sort of the ECB, the Fed, others trying to tighten to try to fight this, and we get sort of this. You know, there was. Uh, um, uh, this, this, they say deflation is the midwife of hyperinflation. Again, I'm not. I, I don't think we're gonna have hyperinflation. I do think we're gonna have sustained high inflation. I think we're gonna have an inflationary spike beyond what we've had. But they're gonna try to fight this thing. You're gonna get maybe this modest deflation, and all hell's gonna break loose in global sovereign debt markets, particularly in the West. And then they're gonna have to come back in to do QE or yield curve control. Or what you're gonna find is that European Union debt, the yields don't go down. When rates go up, there's no bid for safety because there's a balance of payments problem. In the U.S., the U.S. will slow down. We're going to go into a recession, I think. And Treasury yields either aren't going to fall or they're going to rise. And that's, I think, going to be the aha moment of, oh, oh the balance sheet finally matters in the West, European Union, U.S. 
And then the Fed, the ECB, they're going to have to go back to QE. Oil will have come down from 110 to 102 or something <laughs> because of the, it being the, the, the problem. It will not have gone to 30 like they're hoping to break Putin. And then they're going to have to print into the inflation spike. Uh, and it will be obvious to everybody that it is about financing deficits. So if you think we may have reached a point, because we've had you know, decades of QE not translating into inflation, and that has given both central bankers and policymakers an awful lot of confidence that, hey, you know, we can do this without any adverse effects. Do you think next time around, because whichever way this goes, they're going to have to stimulate, right? They're going to have to do something on either end of this. And, and, and they believe that, for the most part, we can do this without consequence. Do you think we've finally reached the next time around the point in time where the any kind of QE type stimulus is reflected in the real economy straight away? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, the reason I paused was, is I think you still have to think about the fiscal side relative, right? I think part of the reason we finally did get that inflation in the West was we had the fiscal, yes. it was basically helicopter money, the, the fiscal spent and the, and the central banks monetized it over the last, you know, from 2020, 2021. So we got that inflation. I don't know that we're going to get that level of fiscal in this next downturn, but particularly in the West with the social social uh, entitlement programs, you have the fiscal, right? You're going to get, you know, that money's going to go out. The, the central banks are going to monetize it. And I think the other thing is this peak cheap energy side, where I think you're going to get real inflation going forward because if we're right, and I think we are right, that the, 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 the bottleneck is energy, that the bottleneck are commodities, the bottleneck are real stuff, then now we're in a cycle where the Fed's going to have to print, the ECB is going to have to print to cover fiscal deficits, and they're not going to be doing it with oil at 30. They're going to be doing it with oil at 102. And so oil is going to go to 200. And when oil goes to 200, and then and, and now that's going to slow things further, and, and then they're going to have to print more with oil, and oil will go from 200 to 150, and then they're going to have to do it again, and oil is going to go to 250. And I, you know, until it forces some sort of change in the system, but I, I, I think the days between how much of the Western budgets are these social entitlements where there's sort of embedded fiscal, uh, number one, and then number two, the peak cheap energy and commodity side where you're just not going to get the respite in terms of deflation in commodities and underlying goods, real stuff that you've gotten in prior cycles uh, because of really the energy being the, the, uh, the bottleneck that I think you're just going to go sort of, you know, you'll get some pullbacks in, in energy and food, but it's not going to be like it has been for the last 40 years. There's just not going to be that, that deflationary, disinflationary impulse from, from commodities. Well, you know, you, we talk about the oil price going up and, and nowhere has that felt more than at the, at the petrol pump, right? I mean, it, the, and this is a phenomenon that I found truly fascinating. You know, gas price in the US, $7 in California. There's talk of petrol pumps having to reprogram their pumps for $10 gas because you know, they're just not ready for that, just from a, a, you know, a digit perspective. And it's really interesting because if you think about that, you realize – in America, America doesn't work with $8 gasoline. It just, it just doesn't work. It's, it's completely unaffordable. And, you know, what ways are there to change that, right? They're talking about price controls because, of course, they are. 
the real solution is because it, to your point, if if you're right, um, and I think there's a good possibility you are, oil is going to go higher than the, than where we are now. And oil goes to two hundred bucks. You say, what are gas prices? And of course, the only real way to do something about that is not price controls. It's to lower the taxes on the gasoline, right? But again, these governments don't have the ability to lose the income they make from the taxes on gas revenues. It just seems like such a box that they're in. You know, I think any time you're talking as price controls as a solution, you've already lost, right? So, so what does the American political class do about this? Because with elections coming up in November, they're in a real bind here. Yeah, they are. Um, they are. And I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm hearing, I mean, you're hearing it too, right? I, I've been in America my whole life. I've never heard about diesel shortages in America. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're a country where everything, you know, 60 or 70% of the dollar value of goods in this country moves on truck. You're talking about possible diesel shortages in the Northeast. So what's going to do the political climate in the Northeast if, I mean, we already have good, have had good shortages, but if the trucks don't move, stuff's not going to move. And if stuff doesn't move, you know, in good times, there's only three days of food at the average grocery store. And that's not to say we're going to have food outages, but you're going to have spot shortages of stuff. Uh, and it's going to get much more obvious. And I think once you start seeing spot shortages of things, baby formula is a perfect example. And maybe yeah. there's some, maybe there's, uh, you know, some, some specifics that, that have driven those outages, but the point still stands. We let 90% of baby food go to like three plants. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, but the point is, is that once you start being trained that the stuff you want isn't always there at the store, what that's really saying is my dollars aren't always good for stuff. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. And that just ingrains this inflationary mindset of, oh, it's here, buy it now. Actually get two. Yeah. And um, that then is very, very dangerous for the policymakers on the, on the monetary side because they've got to raise rates enough to kill that. But the problem is the debt's so high on the sovereign side that the, the rates, I think already, the rates needed to kill the inflationary mindset that has already been ingrained after the last two years, I think is more than the federal government can afford. In other words, the Fed pulling the Volcker yeah. will bankrupt the U.S. government. And so they're stuck. And so now you look at the election for the fall to your question of what do they do? You know, they're trying to fight inflation. It's not working. <laughs> Food and gas are up, not down. Uh, but everybody's portfolio is down 20%, uh, including their bonds, which had never happened before. Um, and so I, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I, I suspect it is a version of we fought inflation. They'll come up with some bullshit propaganda like Putin's price hike of, hey, we, we, we won against inflation. We succeeded. We're doing everything we can. And so to improve the economy, the Fed is going back to QE. And that's you're going to get to your double digits in California on gasoline prices, and you're going to get much higher food. But it, at least they can point to the stock market being at all time highs, because I think if they have to point to gas here and everybody's portfolio is down 20 percent, he was, I think, rapidly heading toward a recession by the election if the Fed doesn't rapidly change course. That's a really losing policy. I mean, that's I think really their choice is you can have you can have stagflation with an, a recession, high energy, food, and you know people losing their jobs on the margin, 
or you can have really high inflation and everybody feeling rich as they look at their their their, their stock accounts and take your chances with how the you know the sort of the bottom 50% of Americans vote who don't have giant stock accounts that are, aren't going up and instead they're just getting killed by the inflation um that that it's a very unsavory set of choices for for the US political class yeah and again that's something you've been talking about now for a while about the, the choices that these guys have to make none of them are good and, and you know, ultimately it's a numbers game and i just think if you solve for higher equity prices, it's a really dumb mistake to make. That's not to say they won't do it, but I think in the long term, that's a really, really bad recipe to try and cook. You know, it, I, talking about the shortages, Pippa Mangren said something to me last year before this really got entrenched. She said, you know, the, the problem that we're facing here is that because of COVID, everybody has a recent memory of not being able to buy diapers, milk, toilet roll, cleaning products. And so if you have that recent memory, which we haven't had for years, there's been abundance in every supermarket shelf in the country. When you have that recent memory of not being able to buy something, you're much more willing to tolerate higher prices because your, your benchmark is not being able to get it rather than pay 5%, 10% more for it. And that's giving these companies the ability to pass on prices in the short term for people for, for stuff like that, that, that you know they're going to want to buy and go, geez, it's expensive, but what if, what if the shops are out? So everywhere you look, this inflationary problem, I'd been expecting this to happen, but I didn't expect it to get so entrenched so quickly. Uh, that's kind of caught me a little bit by surprise. And of course, you know, we've touched about it in the beginning of the show, and I want to kind of wrap up by talking about it, and that's the dollar. Because, um, you know, our mutual buddy Brent, who hopefully will we'll get on here at some point to, to talk about this between the three of us, because that's always just a really enjoyable conversation. But um, the dollar has been incredibly strong, which is not helping anybody, as, as you said earlier on. It looks like it's starting maybe to top out. But is that a false break, do you think? Do you think the dollar goes higher from here and, and turns up the pain level another notch? I think, and this is a very recent, like if you would have asked me this question four or five days ago, I would have said, no, I think it's going higher still. I actually think it's it's topped out. And the reason I think it's topped out is I think we've started to see, I think when you look at Walmart last week, when you look at Target last yeah. week, when you look at Amazon last week doing... Uh, cutting back on hiring plans and backing out of leases. When you, um, I, I'm seeing a lot of data points that suggest the U.S. economy is not just tapping the brakes, it's slamming the brakes. And that, I think, is a really interesting point for the dollar because I think over the next one to two months, we're going to get macro data points and company data points that support the view that second half GDP, as it stands now, is going to be negative in the U.S. Um, or, or, or pointing in that direction. And now you're a policymaker, you're done. Um, I think that I think that as those data points come out, I think the dollar is going to react pretty instantly, which is down. I think the dollar is going to start going, oh goodness, the US has a balance of payments problem. Not someday, not next year, now, because the policymakers are faced with a choice of does the Fed keep tightening into this recession? And if they do, then I'll be totally wrong and the dollar is going to scream higher. Uh, but what's going to happen is the world's going to dump treasuries to, to, to raise dollars. They're going to dump stocks to raise dollars. You're going to go into a death spiral where, you know, if you like down 20% stocks and down 15% bonds, then 
I think, given what seems highly likely to happen to the economic data series, if the Fed raises rates into a recession, uh, you're going to you're going to love what comes next, which is going to be stocks down another 30 and bonds down another 20. Um, wash, rinse, repeat until either the system collapses or the Fed cries uncle. That's a tail risk. I think much more likely is uh, uh, is that we see these data series come out again, I think, at the macro level, the corporate level over the next one to two months. Um, and the dollar turn keeps it goes lower because I think what's really going to happen is people are going to go, okay, U.S. is heading to recession, last three recessions, U.S. debt to GDP uh, or deficits as a percent of GDP have risen by anywhere from 400 to 1,000 basis points, right? So um, if as we head towards recession, that issuance number that Yellen talked about for treasuries you know, in 2Q being very low, that number is going to go up. A bunch. The three Q number is going to go up even more. Basically, four hundred to a thousand basis points of 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 uh, of GDP is a trillion to two and a half trillion more of issuance relative to where they are today. Um, and there's no buyers. There's no buyers for that with the dollar where it is. Foreigners aren't going to take down. They're they're selling. Fed selling. Treasury selling. Mom and pop are are, are going to be being hurt. So that. The only buyer for that's the Fed and the Feds. So I think the dollar will quickly roll down on the realization the Fed is going to have to come back in in QE with oil at 110 to finance U.S. deficits. And so that's, like I said, what I've seen change in the last week with some of these, you know, Walmart, Target, Amazon, transports, ISM, et cetera. Uh, it's it's there. We're, we're not tapping the brakes. We're slamming the brakes. And I think that's bad for the dollar. It's funny. You know, one of the big shifts has been this need on the part of policymakers at the central banks to lower rates for a long time, or at least they've believed it was a need. They've believed that was the solution to all the problems. It's just cut rates, cut rates, cut rates. And then and when we get to zero, we start QE. The other big shift, of course, is now they need to be able to raise rates. And of course, to your point just there, they can't, right? You can't raise rates. And so, you know, again, when you think of the big shifts that we're looking at here, one of the other big shifts that we're seeing on every part, whether it's on the commodity sector, whether it's on the consumer sector, and now the central bank sector, we've shifted to a time where there are things you need to do. And this was Jeff Gundlach's point to me a few years ago, and I've quoted this often, but it just sticks in my head. You know, he said, you know, fear and greed are powerful but there's one thing more powerful than both, and that's need. He said, you know, when, when you need to do something, you don't have a choice. So I wonder if we're, if we're moving into an age of need, because things are so tight everywhere, there are things that need to be done, and you don't have a choice, how do you juggle that, right? Because because you do need higher rates. But if you take that to this next logical sense, we don't have a choice but to raise rates, the problems that creates, enormous. And so how do we, if we're moving into a, a period where need is what counts, you need energy, right? you need commodities, you need higher rates, but you can't get them, how does that philosophically shift the big picture? Because I'm wrestling with this a lot at the moment, and I can't figure it out. Yeah, to me, it speaks to you know, how do you cut that Gordian knot is sort of a, a, a reset of the system, right? where you, right. you go in on a Friday and you come in on a, on a Sunday night and you know, the one asset on every central bank's balance sheet that can be written up without blowing anything up is gold, right? And so it's, you know, hey, we've, 
you know, we've we've all written our gold up to ten thousand dollars an ounce, and we're going to raise rates to you know four percent, and and you know basically what you've done is massively devalued, um, you know, massively devalued currencies, and and by virtue of that, massively written down the debt, uh, and then you start raising rates right away because the tidal wave of inflation that that sort of comes in from the devaluation of currencies around the world. I, I think that's I think that's sort of where we are, because the outcomes are so binary. Otherwise, right? I mean, we're really yeah, getting into exactly. a point of of if they print into this, you are running. You're, you, I think it's really a political choice. Inflation is not going to be easy, but if they let the inflation go, central banks. I think that's the other way out of this. Is that I think I think if I had to ascribe percentages. The over weekend gold revaluation is still a very low percentage. I think that's sort of the really emergency thing if things get really out of control. I think the much more likely thing is is push comes to shove, what they need to do, what they need to do is inflate the debt away. And so what happens is is we get this little recession, they come in, they QE, the bond market figures it out, starts going up, Fed goes, okay, that's it. Gentlemen, the 10 years three percent until we further until further notice. We will buy every 10 year and the and the two year is is two percent, and banks can make their two, you know, their 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 hundred basis points as as public money utilities. If you don't like that, we'll let rates go, and you guys can all go bust uh, because rates will go to the moon, and your credit losses will bankrupt all of you. So don't come to my office and complain. Get out. Uh, you're going to make hundred basis points, two to ten, and inflation goes nuts. We basically, I think, the outcome is sort of an early early eighties is rate Israel. For the for the United States, for Europe, where we have 100 to 400 percent inflation for two, three years. And at the end of that, um, U.S. debt to GDP is 30, 40 percent. And the Fed goes, OK, that's it. Rate, you know, Fed funds are eight. This is over. We're, we're done with this and we're cutting money supplies drastically. We're deficit spending is going down. Um, you know, they cut deficits, they jack up rates, they bring the inflation back under control. And you know, as a practical matter, gold's probably at ten thousand in that case as well, um, and the whole thing starts back over because that's that's the happy outcome. That's the only right. politically palatable yeah. outcome. That's a scary like, thing. Yeah, the unhappy outcome is like what you and I talked about a couple of years ago, right? In that book, uh, nineteen thirty-one, which is mm-hmm. everybody thinks Hitler came to power because of the hyperinflation. That's not the case. Hitler came to power because of the austerity. So the, the alternative is, is, okay, the Fed takes rates to, to 5 or 8%, and the U.S. government goes, oof, you know, we can't afford our, our Treasury spending, our, our entitlements, and our defense anymore. And so, well, we have to pay the Treasuries because we're not going to default. And that means, boomers, you lose 60% of your entitlements. Uh, defense Department, I know we're spending $800 billion a year, but now you're only going to get $100 billion. Sorry. And we pull out of, you know, we pull out of Russia or out of out of uh, the Ukraine situation, we pull all of our bases out. The next election is going to be chaos, right? Food stamps go away, you know, massive austerity. The U.S. government is 25% of GDP almost. It would have to shrink enormously. Uh, so you go and, you know, the problem, of course, is you do that, the first turn of it, and you, you, you buy yourself room. And the problem is, is GDP falls. So now your tax receipts are even lower. So now you're even further... So now you have to cut more. So your sixty percent cut to entitlements is now eighty the next year, and then the year after that it's it's ninety percent. And you you don't you can't shrink yourself 
to, to sort of a surplus. What you end up doing is then eventually you go, well, we tried austerity and it didn't work and tax receipts are here. So now we are going to default on treasuries. And, and, and you, so I, I think really where this goes is they print money into inflation spike. They let it go for a few years. As long as they can convince people that, you know, these is not, this is not the inflation you're looking for. These are not the droids you're looking for. Right. They'll do that as long as they can. They've done a pretty good job of it already convincing people inflation in the U.S. is only eight or whatever it is, which is a total joke. Um, but at some point, they will lose control of that narrative. And at that point, the Fed comes in and the ECB comes in and just says, that's it. I'm drawing a line on the bond chart. Here it is at the two. Here it is at the 10. And you know we're going to keep spending this way. And inflation goes nuts. Stocks go nuts. Um, gold goes nuts. And, and then we come back in, in two years and everything's 100 to 300% more expensive and debt to GDP is a third of what it was uh, and a half to a third of what it was. And and then they renormalize the system. It's so fascinating. We've talked for so many years, I guess, you and I and, and plenty of others talked about the idea of a reset. And it's been a kind of vague notion that the system will have to reset because it's becoming unsustainable. But here we are. And, and now we're actually having to figure out what a reset looks like. And, and 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 the word reset is becoming much more frequent in the vernacular, people talking about resets. Again, I don't think it's really occurred to a lot of people what a reset involves. So it's it's fantastic to have a chance to have these conversations and 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 kind of work through conceptually what these resets look like because we don't know, right? It could, the resets could happen in so many ways. But but I think this conversation you and I have begun and will continue to have is just a really useful way to get people thinking about potential outcomes because, you know, none of us know the future. What we do know is change. That's the future. The future is a different system to the one we have now because this one has reached its end of life. That, if nothing else is clear, that must be clear to everybody on so many levels. So, you know, look, I can't thank you enough for having this conversation with me on an ongoing basis. You know, I, I always look forward to getting a chance to have these discussions with you because it, it, it leaves me with so much more to ponder. So, look, before we finish, I'm sure most people listening to this know how to find you and follow your work because it's uh, it's been exceptional for, for so many years now. But it just, as I said to you before, it feels like we're coming into a really sweet spot for you and the kind of way you think about life so talk to people and just give them a quick update on how they can follow your work if they're not doing so already absolutely uh thank you it's uh you can go to our website fftt-llc.com find out more information about various uh institutional and mass market product offerings and i'm uh as you know pretty active on twitter at luke groman l-u-k-e-g-r-o-m-e-n uh and they can follow me there as well Fantastic stuff. All right, buddy. Well, listen, until next time, uh, who knows how the shifts will have uh, happened between now and then, but uh, there's no one else to rather discuss them with. So thanks again, mate. Thanks for having me on. It was great catching up, my friend. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.